Happy Palm Sunday, everybody. It's funny. Great minds think alike. I was telling Oscar when he sat down. I was gonna pull, I was gonna show. I was gonna say that uh, that photo of the lamb with the with the Easter's was also was not stock. The women's group got together for uh, uh, for their their gathering this week and just stuffed a thousand over a thousand eggs. And uh, what's crazy is the guys group who met who you know one of the guys group uh, the guys group that met uh, the night after. Uh, we were like, okay, hey, we'll finish up and we'll do any eggs that you guys haven't done. They got them all stuffed, and within like 10 minutes, 10 minutes, I see some of the gals in that group like, yeah, I'm like, that's, okay, beast mode in, in, in the best of, in a good way, in a good way, beast mode. Um, well, happy, happy Palm Sunday. You know what I thought? Uh, oh, a quick note. So what we're going to do, so our scripture text is we're not going to be looking at the Palm Sunday account, um, but we are celebrating in light of that. I mean, this is the day when Jesus, Jesus came into Jerusalem, starting the events rolling for the week that would end in, in his passion, in, in going to the cross, and ultimately what we celebrate next week in Easter, uh, rising from the dead and conquering sin and death. So this is kind of the first day in Holy Week, as the church has called it uh, throughout the ages. And we're, we're going to celebrate that in a u- unique way, just like on that first day, there was folks kind of pulling off their outer cloaks and putting them before Jesus as he's riding in on the donkeys. Uh, many others were running to the nearby fields and they were, caught, they were cutting off palm fronds and they were laying them down at Jesus' feet, at the donkey's feet as he walked in. Uh, we're going to celebrate in a similar way with the kids coming in on the last uh, song. Um, so parents, uh, be ready for that. Everybody be ready for that. I mean, the cuteness factor is going to like kind of spike and overload. Um, it'll be a lot of fun. But they'll be coming in the very last song. Parents, um, obviously we're, we have a lot more uh, helping hands uh, on, on call today, helping with this and helping ensure that they get to you. But uh, if you can also look for your kid as they come down and have them come to you, that'd be great. For those of you who are wondering, is my kid coming down? They're in the nursery. No, they're not going to be crawling down. We're going to leave those guys in in the nursery. Um, But that'll be fun. We'll celebrate after the message in communion. Um, So today, what I thought we'd do is we'd, in preparation for Easter, we would focus our hearts on the cross, what the cross is all about. I've heard it said that there would be no Easter if there was no Good Friday, or there would be no Easter if there was no cross. Well, today, I want to look at the account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you have your Bibles, you can open up there to uh, Mark 14. We're going to be looking at verses 32 through 42. If you don't have your Bible, uh, no worries. It'll, it'll be up on the screen. You can follow along that way. Um, Mark 14, starting at verse 32. This is the account of when the cross and everything that it meant hit Jesus like a steamroller. I mean, the anticipation of it enough was, uh, alone was enough to crush him. Have you ever faced anything in life where the anticipation alone of what you were getting ready to get into or go into or face or whatever was enough alone to crush you? Maybe it was going into a big job interview. Maybe it was getting ready for a really hard conversation. Maybe it was saying goodbye to a loved one. And just the anticipation of it alone was enough to just kind of... That's what Jesus is facing here on the cross. He gets the, the full dose of what his whole life has been setting up for. Uh, he, he, he comes into the cro- uh, to, to, to see the cross and to face the cross. So what we see here in this text is it tells us so much of who he is and what he came to do for us. And what, what I want to focus on are actually three things uh, that this teaches us about the cross specifically. So three things we're going to look at the cross, um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll um, uh, get to communion. So the first thing it says about the cross is it shows us the validity of the cross, the validity of the cross. A lot of people have said, um, even today, will say that the Christian scriptures were compiled by a committee, a committee of editors, that people just kind of got together as we're either forming this 
religion, or we're trying to maintain this blossoming religion. Let's pull together the sources, or let's, let's uh, make, pull these in, let's write this in, let's do all that sort of thing. The only problem with that is uh, we have no evidence for that. There, there's no evidence for that. Uh, first of all, and, and much more briefly, because this is not um, the focus of today's uh, topic, but first of all, we don't have any external evidence that shows that. There's no evidence that shows that there was a committee that pulled together or voted on the Scriptures. I've actually had over the years a lot of people say, oh yeah, it's this council or this council. There's no evidence actually of that. In fact, all the external evidence, the evidence outside the Bible, shows, gives credit to the Bible being written the way it was written. For instance, we're in the, the Gospel of Mark, the book of Mark. We have primary sources going back to the, as early as the first part of the second century, saying one church leader writing to another, attributing what's written in this book to John Mark, to Mark. Um, and by the way, his source material, Mark's source material, was Peter. He interviewed Peter. And so that's what we, so there's, we have external evidence actually saying that that's the case, going back even to the time in which people would have lived and have known Mark had that worked out for them. Um, so that's external evidence. But then there's also, and this is kind of more of the focus I want to uh, talk about with you today here briefly, is the internal evidence um, showing that this really happened. The cross really happened. Um, for instance, uh, no writer or leader trying to establish or prove a new religion would include an account of Jesus' life like this. I mean, if you think about in terms of, some, of, of all the, the, the leading, uh, the world leaders and founders of thought, religion, philosophy, you name it, they are all given to us throughout history of, having, of being unwavering in their resolve, even, by the way, in the face of death. So, for instance, you have Socrates, which is a good example here because it was about the time of, of Jesus and that, that time, of, the, that, that time of, of history. Socrates, Plato tells us, when he was on his execution bedside, he had students come and hang out with him like it was every other day. Socrates was, was holding lessons for his pupils and even actually making jokes on that day that he was executed. That's Socrates. Or think about Peter. Peter Jesus' own follower, who actually shows up in this story. History tells us that when he was told he was going to be crucified, which he was, he asked in the face of death, in the face of the same type of death that Jesus would face, history tells us that he said, please crucify me upside down. Why? Because he didn't want to die in the same manner of his Lord. That's one of his followers facing the exact same type of death as him. And coming at it from, no, 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 let's, let's, let's do it upside down because I'm not worthy to die in a similar manner as Jesus. So then what gives? Why would Jesus, I mean, do you see how differently he faces death here? Verses 34 and 30, uh, 33 and 34. He took Peter, James, and John. Those are three of his closest uh, followers, the guys he was kind of grooming up for leadership. He took them along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. The word behind there is he was being crushed in his spirit. The weight was just overwhelmingly crushing him. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. And let me ask you this. What did he end up praying for? The Son of God, Abba Father, he says, which we'll talk about in a minute. The Son of Man, which he refers to himself back in verse 41. The Son of God, the Son of Man. What is his prayer in this moment as he faces death? That he doesn't have to go through with it. You see that? That this would pass from me? In fact, we're even told that it's, the weight is so heavy that he threw himself to the ground. 
in the, this is verse 35, and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Do you know that there's actually a lot of Christians who are embarrassed by this account? There's a lot of people, a lot of Christians who say, man, I wish we could just overlook this. Now, why do we go into all of this? Why does it matter? Because it happened. If you are trying to start a religion or maintain a religion, you don't write it this way, especially in that culture. I mean, you think, think about the Roman culture, the strong Roman culture, or Greek culture, or for that matter, the Jewish culture. You don't write your hero, your protagonist, this way. If anything, you have to say, guys, it's going to be a real big deal. It's going to be real big, but I've got this. No, Jesus is actually praying that it would pass. It happened. And why else do, should we think about it? Um, uh, why does this matter? You can think of it this way. It's really easy to read the Bible and say, oh, these are just stories. These are just myths. But in terms of the historical merit to it, no, I'm not sure. But if we read and we wrestle with the texts for what they are, they refuse to let us do that. We have to deal with them. It happened. It matters. That's the validity of the cross. We also see the severity of the cross. So the question then becomes, well, well then why did Jesus, who had foreseen his death, and by the way, had predicted it any number of times along the way, and now being so resolutely going towards it to meet it, why is he now trembling before it? Uh, the answer has to be that he saw something, he was aware of something far greater than, only, than just the physical act of death that he was facing. Um, what was that? Well, he tells us in his prayer, if you look at verse 36, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Jesus doesn't want to drink the cup, verse 36, to the point of death, verse 34. The cup in the Hebrew Scriptures is about suffering and punishment, usually at, at God's hand. So if you look at, at verse, uh, excuse me, Psalm 75, uh, here the writer says, in, in the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its dregs. Isaiah 51 says, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. Jesus is staggering before the cross because he's seeing it not just as the physical crucifixion that he would face, which, let's be real, that was scary, but he's seeing it further as taking God's wrath, God's judgment for humankind upon himself. Um, if you actually flip back in your Bibles, or, I don't, you know, swipe back, I don't know how it works on our apps now, um, but if you go back uh, a couple of, of pages uh, to Mark 10, you'll see in verse uh, 45 that Jesus actually states his purpose for coming, for coming to do what he, what he was coming to do. Uh, he, says it, he says it this way, uh, the purpose of the Son of Man, which by the way, he refers to himself in our text in the Garden of Gethsemane, we'll come to that in a little bit, the purpose of the Son of Man was to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, that's a way of saying that was his objective description of his purpose, but now we see in the garden his subjective experience of it. In Gethsemane, Jesus must make the first payment of that ransom to will, to will to become the sin bearer for, hum for humankind. You know, the son, the son of Man reference is also very rich that he uses for himself in verse 41. It's, of course, yes, a reference to his humanity, but again, in the Hebrew Scriptures, over and over, that title that Jesus claims for himself is also a title related to Messiah in Hebrew or Christ in the Greek. 
It's, it's, a, it's a reference to him being Savior of the world. Other terms that follow along with the Son of Man are man of sorrows, which we'll sing about in a little bit, or the suffering servant. They're all the same. They're all prophesying about Jesus to come. Here's a prophecy 750 years before Christ. And uh, if, if you have a hard time following that, the Dead Sea Scrolls of, of this account, which fi- basically has it in its, tack, in its entirety, dates well back before Christ came at all. But listen to this. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Pierced, crushed for our iniquities. Uh, verse 10 of that same chapter Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And if we were to ask, well, how could God ever bring this type of suffering, this drinking of this cup uh, to his servant, to his own son, we need to look no further than that same text. Verse 6 of Isaiah 53 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Here, then, is what the Bible is saying about all these terms, and, about, and what Jesus is saying is he claims these terms. Son of man, the cup, even by the way in verse 41, which you don't have time to get into, when he says the hour has come, all of these rich in meaning, he's saying it's one thing to be fearful as it is to consider answering for this, all our sin before a holy and just God, but who can imagine standing before God, facing the sin, every act of malice, selfishness, greed, and evil of all people for all time that would put their faith in him. That's what Jesus was facing on the cross. And you know what? Actually, it gets a little bit worse because not only was Jesus facing crucifixion, not only was he facing bearing the weight of mankind's sin and the wrath that would come alongside that, in order for that to happen, it also meant he had to be completely alienated from God the Father. Uh, and that alienation is echoed here in this, in this uh, Garden of Gethsemane prayer. He said, Abba, Father. If you've been with us, you know, when we looked at the Lord's Prayer, when he said Father, when he talks about Abba, that's a word of real intimacy along the lines of Daddy. He said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. And what was the response? Silence. He prayed again, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. The, rep- the response, silence. A third time he prayed, Abba, Father, everything's possible. Take this cup from me. The response was silence. Jesus was getting the bitter foretaste of what he would experience fully on the cross. Words that he would echo from the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was completely alienated. God turned his back to him, God the Father. And I think to help us understand kind of the force of this is, man, it's hard it's hard to say goodbye to anyone we love, let alone somebody we've known for a good period of time, let alone, let alone someone we've seen over a lifetime. It's hard to say goodbye. It's hard to, it's hard to be ripped from them. But this, if we, if we understand it theologically, is the Son of Man, the Son of God, who had been with God the Father for all eternity in perfect relationship with nothing kind of tainting the relationship at all. Perfect relationship, perfectly intimate and loving, and yet he experienced God the Father turning his back on us, uh, on him for the sake of loving us. Uh, listen to how C.S. Lewis comments on the prayer and, and this abandonment that, that we see here. In Gethsemane, the holiest of all petitioners prayed three times that a certain cup might pass from him. It did not. 
Another writer thinks of it this way, Gethsemane is where he died. The cross is only the evidence. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I was thinking about it this morning. I was just kind of mulling these thoughts over, and it struck me in that time, not earlier in the week in my study. It struck me that word yet is everything, isn't it? Take this cup from me, uh, this, this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Everything hinges upon that. And now we see, of course, the promise and the power of the cross. The promise and the power of the cross, quite, quite straightforward, is the perfect and pleasing will of God the Father to send His Son to die for you and me. And the perfect and pleasing obedience of the Son to do that for us, to accept it for us. This is why Jesus came into the world. You know, I said earlier that... Um, that there would be no Easter if not for the cross. There would also be no Christmas if not for the cross. I mean, if Jesus had come and he had done everything that he had done, all these wonderful things that we have recorded about his life, all these amazing healings and, and, and miracles and all those sorts of things, um, all wonderful, but if he had not gone to the cross, we would not be celebrating Christmas today. Or if we were, it would be kind of, what's the point? Um, Jesus came for the sake of the cross, for the sake of loving us and doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. You know, I really love how this actually plays out. Love, hate is how I should say this. How this plays out in the disciples' lives in this story. Did you guys notice how the disciples kind of play out in this story in the, in the garden? Um, they kind of have a, as frustrating of a response as they do, comical to responding to Jesus. Jesus takes these three guys into the, into the garden, and what does he ask of them? Stay here and watch. That's it. Stay here and watch. Verse 34, I think he repeats it at some point. I was wondering about that this week. I was like, why did he ask them to sit here, stay here and watch? I mean, for instance, he knows that, the, that the, the, uh, everything was already set in motion, that the betrayer was going to come. He was bringing all the authorities with their clubs and their torches. Everything was already set in mo- motion. In just a few minutes, he was going to be arrested. And, and there was nothing that these three disciples were going to be able to do. Okay, so I'm like, why did he say then, stay here and watch? And by the way, even if they could have done something, Jesus wouldn't have wanted them to. How do I know that? Well, if you look, if you keep reading the account, Peter tries to like get all smart with a little dagger against all this, all these people. It's comical. He's trying to do something. Jesus is like, what are you doing? But his point is not like Peter. You just gotta. You're bringing a you know butter knife to, you know, an army fight here. He's. he's he, that's not his point. His point is. Peter, don't you realize, this is why I came. So why did he say, stay here and watch? I was thinking about that. And then it came crystal clear to me as I was reading the other text, uh, parallel text in Matthew's account. In Matthew, he records the same words. Jesus says to these three guys, stay here and watch. But he records a couple other words that that Mark uh, omits. In Matthew, he says, stay here and watch with me. And maybe you had already figured it out or it came to you right away, but it was in that moment, I was like, oh my goodness, here's what's happening. Jesus is facing the worst of all things. Here is this person who has poured his life out on every single page that we have recorded of him, helping others over and over again. And in this one moment, he genuinely needs and wants his friends to be there with him. 
and they couldn't do it. Stay here and watch. He goes off and he prays and he comes back. They're, not, they're asleep. He goes off. He's like, guys, come on. Goes off, comes back. They're asleep. Third time, come back. Are you guys still sleeping? What's going on? Now, on one hand, on the one hand, I can relate to this, okay? Now, to think about it in terms of the, what's happening in the events, this is actually Passover week, leading up to Passover. And so there's a lot of festivities going on. They had just received the Lord's Supper, communion, which we're going to celebrate today, which we have grape juice in our our thing. They had wine there. So in the early morning, you know, the late hours of the night, that probably was going on and sleeping probably was going to be a little bit more. I get all, um, you know, when I, uh, but on a more, on a more, per, more personal, personal, personal note, no, when, we, when we had Caleb especially, and even, uh, even Maddie, I remember um, uh, I knew I was going to have to wake up in the middle of the night and, you know, because baby was going to cry. And I told myself, I'm going to be the good dad. I know I was meant to be. And I'm going to get up and I'm going to take baby. And I, Cindy, you stay. And you sleep. Mama, you just, Mama Bear, you sleep. Didn't work that way. <laughs> baby would wake up and we'd both wake up. And Cindy would be like, are you, is there any way, I've just been feeding baby for like five hours. Is there any way you can take a turn? And my response, like, just go away. Like, just, I sound, I sound like Chewbacca when I sleep, I guess. Um, I get it, but on the grand scheme of things, this is the one time Jesus was asking anything of the disciples, anything, and it wasn't all that big of a deal, and they couldn't do it. Why am I going into all this? Why did I feel like this is worth considering? This, my friends, is a microcosm of the gospel, it seems to me. Listen to how one of the writers, this is Apostle Paul writing to one of the church he puts it this way. You see, at just the right time, he's talking about the cross here, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. It seems to me that the disciples playing out the way that they're playing out in the garden is a perfect picture of yours and my spiritual state. We, there's nothing we can do. We are powerless is how the Scripture puts it. Do you ever feel powerless, by the way? You ever feel pa- I, I feel powerless all the time. You ever feel powerless, like you're not living the life you feel like, man, maybe I should, I should be living that way? Or even when you are like, you know what, I'm going to do everything I can, I'm going to muster up all the effort, and I'm going I'm I'm to do right by this person, or I'm going to do over, and it just doesn't happen. Anybody else? Oh, that's, this is me. I feel powerless. I feel absolutely powerless. You know, one of the, the scriptures that I quote all the time. It's actually a couple chapters from the one that's up there, Romans 7. The things I don't want to do, I'm doing those all the time, says Apostle, an amazing follower of Jesus. Just a real amazing display of a, of a good person. The things I don't want to do, I'm doing those. The things I know I should be doing, I'm not doing those things. We are powerless, is how the Bible says it. And yet the writer goes on, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. I love that that text has that wording there because that wording is also in the one that we're looking at today in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see that? Jesus says, enough, after he finds the disciples sleeping for the third time, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Now, here's what's just amazing, what struck me as I was studying for this, is I think there's two meanings going on here. There's a surface-level meaning, and there's a deeper meaning. The surface-level meaning is he's talking about the dudes with the clubs, 
with the torches, the guy, the betrayer, the guy who's going to, Judas, who's going to come kiss him and hand him over for a measly sum of cash. In, some, in one sense, he's talking about those are the hands of sinners. But that is not just what Jesus is talking about. If you follow, you read whatever, what he is saying over and over again, he's talking about all mankind. We, we might not have been there that night with the clubs, the torches, or the kiss, or the people falling asleep. But it's our sin that pegged him to the tree. We delivered him. That's the point. That's what Jesus came to do, to deal with that and to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's why Jesus came into it. It really happened. And it was beyond anything that we could have thought it would be. And yet, Jesus' love and the love of the Father for us is way beyond what we would ever think it to be. I was thinking about it, which I always try to do with every message. So what do we do with this? What should our response be? And I hope, as it is every week, that you know, if the Lord puts something specifically on your heart as we go through this, that you would take that away. I mean, I'm just trying to think for my part, what, what might it mean for us or for me personally? So if there's something else there, I, I hope you're, you're taking that away. To me, quite Simply and, and straightforward, I think the response is just to be in awe of the one who went to the cross. I think that's our response. I, I think a response going into Easter week, I'd encourage you maybe even on Friday, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, Friday is good Friday. It's the day that we remember him on the tree and when he said the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I encourage you to take words just to be in awe of the one who went there, what it cost him. And how much love he had for us to stay there, to be in awe of the one who went to the cross doing for us what we could not do when we were powerless. To be in awe of the one who put us on his back and carried us into the Father's arms. To be in awe of the one who was abandoned that we would never be abandoned. Have you thought of it that way? Here was Jesus in the garden praying, God, Abba, Father. And there was silence he met that silence for the sake of you and I never being abandoned. We might feel like the other end is silent when we pray, but that will never be true because of what Jesus has done for us. He was abandoned that we would never be abandoned. And then finally, to be in awe of the one who drank of the cup of death that we drink now in remembrance of the life he's given us in drinking from that cup. Uh, we come now to the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, Jesus, thank you for the cross. Lord, it's at the cross that we, we see our sin. We see our brokenness. We see our flaws. And we say, we're sorry. It's not the life we should live. We know. We're sorry for the hurt we've caused to others, let alone you, but also when we look to the cross, we see your love, your forgiveness, your grace that never runs out. Your love for us, that you did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So now, Lord, as we come to the communion table, we remember the cup that you drank for us, that we would drink of a different cup. A cup remembering what you have done for us. And if there's anybody here today who's not put their faith in you for what they've done, I pray that you'd work in their heart and help them come to know you even today.
We pray all this in Jesus. Oh, and Lord, I also want to pray one more thing before I wrap up. Lord, would you go before us before Easter? Um, you said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the last words you uttered, the last words you uttered were, it is finished. And so we praise you for that. We thank you for that. Would next week be a celebration unlike no other? And by the way, not just the current, all the, the churches in the area and across the globe that love you. Would they just be a celebration like no other, lifting Jesus high, that we would turn to you and that others, would tur- others for the first time would turn to you and be known and receive eternal life in his name. We love you, Father. We thank you for all that you've done for us. It's in his name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.